Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. So this podcast functions as a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing our unique perspective with the world, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we're creating space for folks in this part of the country who might want to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but might not know where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. But what unites us all is one common goal, and that's to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and thanks for listening. Uh, so we got Charleston DSA member Nick here in the studio today uh, to discuss some of the work he's been doing, talking to folks about the need to shift to a universal single-payer system, uh, also known as Medicare for All. So uh, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, here's a little bit of background information. Medicare for All is a universal national health insurance system in which a public agency organizes health financing uh, but delivery of care uh, remains largely private, so that means no massive state-run hospitals or institutions. Um, under a universal public health care system, all U.S. residents would be covered for all services uh, covered by a medical professional, so that includes primary care, hospital care, uh, like emergency rooms, uh, preventative care, long-term health care, mental health, reproductive health, uh, dental, vision, prescription drug, and medical supply costs. Um, and patients would regain free choice of doctor and hospital, and doctors would regain autonomy over, over patient care. Uh, hey, how you doing, Nick? <laughs> I'm doing great. You just basically covered everything right there. <laughs> I barreled through I'm going to go ahead and head out. <laughs> <laughs> just setting the stage. Um, so uh, talk briefly about some of the work you've been doing here in the Low Country uh, about Medicare for All. So yeah, um, so I am a member of a DSA, but... What I've been working under is the banner of the Debs Jones and Douglas Institute. Okay. Um, I'm one of their field organizers in South Carolina. We have a small team here focusing on making Medicare for All a big issue in the primary. And many of y'all will know that South Carolina is the first Democratic primary in the South. That's right. So we have a really important role to play in kind of setting the tone and the priorities that are going to kind of make or break a lot of candidates. And we feel very strongly that Medicare for All is one of those issues that we really want people, especially our presidential candidates, to to have to support. Um, the Debs Jones Douglas Institute is a uh, cultural and educational branch of the U.S. Labor Party, um, and we've been working down here with a coalition of partners, including the DSA, to do a lot of public education and outreach, and that's taken the many different forms. So we've been doing talks at different clubs, different organizations, churches, college groups. Um, and we've also been going out to flea markets, which is, I think, a pretty novel idea for a lot of organizers. You know, flea markets are these great places where there's a broad intersection of people from different backgrounds, different classes, who are all there. And it's a great chance to just talk to people and and really interact with them um, and, and, and talk about matters that really um, you're passionate about. So we've had a lot of success with that, and we've been expanding outward. We've been going to the Ladson Flea Market pretty regularly over the last couple of months, and we are expanding now mm -hmm. to go to flea markets in Florence, Marion, 
Greer, and hopefully a couple more in the coming months. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, around here, I think flea markets, you really do get a good, like, you know, cross section of, of the folks that really would benefit the most from Medicare for all. And that's really what, you know, where the message needs to be shared. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree there. We've had a really great response. A lot of people, you know, see that we're out there talking about Medicare for all and they come over and they're very excited to talk with us and sign our little, I'm a Medicare for all pledge cards. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I go out there too with you sometimes. Yes, you do. And, uh, yeah. And to give them like a, like to ask them to do something, even, even something that simple, I feel like people, uh, take away a sense of empowerment, like they did something. Um, and if nothing else, it's super easy. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that's working out really well. And, you know, we look forward to participating in more of those. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, universal single payer programs like Medicare for All and how they're different than what we currently have. Sure. So I think it's really important that we start talking about this by kind of outlining the system that we are trying to replace, which I want to be clear is a total and absolute shit show. I think that's the word I'd use. Yeah. yeah. If you're sick in our country, it's a system that makes you poor. And if it, you're poor, it's a system that makes you sick. It's a system where millions of people go without the care they need and the care they deserve because they can't afford insurance, they're underinsured, or because they can't afford all the other expenses that come with it, like copays. Um... So and here's the thing, when people go without care, like they hope that a lump goes away or pain you feel that it's something that they can kind of wait it out, you know, that kind of neglect charges interest. When people go without care because they can't afford it, it ends up getting worse, both in terms of their health, but also in terms of their finances. Right. The health insurance system that we have in this country has been cobbled together over decades and is nearly an incomprehensible maze of procedures and bills and all this claim forms and everything. It's an entire, there's an entire industry based around navigating the complexities of the system. <laughs> it's, it's really absurd. Yeah. And yet patients, patients, us, we're required to be advocates for ourselves. And if you've ever had a major medical expense, you understand that you have a certain responsibility to be your own advocate and navigate this incredibly hard and complicated system so you don't get screwed. Yeah. Yeah. The systems are rigged against patients. And you know what? I'll say it's also, it's rigged against caregivers too. According to the International Journal of Health Services, doctors and small practices spend nearly one-sixth of their week on administrative tasks. And that number is higher for doctors in large hospitals like MUSC, they're our big medical provider here. And doctors in the United States report some of the lowest job satisfaction rates of any comparable country. I think we wow. are just above Germany, which I think is the lowest one in that kind of grouping. So a sidebar uh, question really quick. Um, a lot of our opponents like to point to national healthcare systems like Canada and, and, and the UK, which is having a, which will have had an election, um, you know, by the time this episode comes out. And part of it is kind of a referendum on the uh, NHS. Yeah. So it's, it's funny that, because um, I knew that doctors spent a lot of time on, you know, paperwork, basically. I didn't know it was that much. Yeah. And it's really interesting because a lot of our opponents like to say, you know, oh, well, all of these, you know, quote, socialist countries, unquote, they're not. Um, there's all these, like, waiting lines to get, you know, procedures done. And 
you know, do you think that having this amount of paperwork that doctors regularly regularly need to fill out, do you think that probably in, influences patient care for the worse and like, oh. you know, the amount of time that they actually spend with their doctors? Do you think that that like influences that in a bad way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I never went to medical school, but you know, you go through medical school, you spend all these years learning how to care for patients, and then you spend this huge chunk of your time doing paperwork. I mean, you should be out there providing care. That's what you went to school for. That's the skills that you've cultivated. That's what we need you for. We don't need you to do the paperwork. And kind of to what you were saying about, you know, all these socialist systems that, you know, the right likes to claim are socialist, NHS, the Canadian system, whatever, which I will point out, they might not be socialist, but they were fought for by socialists. They absolutely were. Right. Right. So the the claim that a lot of the right tries to make is that having some kind of national system is going to basically be a system where we ration care. And to that, I will say we already ration care. But the yep. insurance companies are rationing care for the sake of profit. That's what's happening right now. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think that kind of comes back to... Um, kind of get back to where we're at as far as our healthcare system in this country. So everyone already knows that we got the ACA or Obama, Obamacare passed in the um, last uh, administration. Right. And the ACA made some strides to change the system up. And sure. I think it's important to understand and acknowledge the progress it made by extending coverage and creating the, the marketplace. And uh, it established the rule that, you know, you can't be turned away from uh, right. pre-existing conditions. Pre -existing I have condition. a pre-existing condition. And let me tell you, that was... Uh, <laughs> You know, that was welcome news. <laughs> yeah, pre-existing conditions or like anywhere else that has like a sane system would call it your, your medical history. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. But yeah, let's be real. Like the ACA ended up being gutted long before Trump took office. Right. What started off as this high-minded crusade for universal coverage became a massive handout for the insurance industry. And even the marketplace, a lot of costs are too high for many individuals and families to afford. So we have this huge problem in our system. Um, just in 2016... According to the journal American Journal of Public Health, you know our health insurance industry pushed millions of people, millions of people, into poverty and near poverty or extreme poverty, I should say. And and for what? You know, did they get better outcomes? No, no, no. We have a system that makes surprise right. <laughs> the system that we have makes people very insecure financially and makes them not get the health they need. There's this other study that was done um, recently that showed that families, households that are making up to $180,000 a year, which is doing really well for yourself pretty much anywhere in this country. Yeah. You're making that much money. You're doing very well. You're doing okay. Even up to that point, families were not convinced that if they had a medical emergency, that they wouldn't be, they wouldn't go bankrupt or basically be reduced to having some very significant financial hardship. And right. that should terrify everybody. I don't care yeah. where you are on the political spectrum. That is a level of insecurity that should be intolerable. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, all that, that's that's basically what we have now. Yeah. It's a mess and it's terrible. Um, so how we're going to fix it is with a universal single payer system or what we're calling now Medicare for all. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. Okay, yeah, and um, uh, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think this is a really good uh, uh, way to introduce my uh, third question here. So, um, and, and you know, bear with me. I, I hope, hopefully I'm not jumping ahead of you here. 
Um, so a lot of folks, and, and this includes like some folks that you and I have talked to at the flea market, they kind of scratch their heads a little bit over uh, and uh, over us calling it the word Medicare. Like mm-hmm. there's some baggage that comes with it. Um, so are there uh, some places where it actually does like kind of let patients down? Uh, is this the best model? I guess, for healthcare in this country? Sure. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. There are definitely parts of the program that don't work as well as they should. And there are several areas that coverage is just just missing, such as dental, mental health, vision, and long-term care. Right. And these are very important parts of being a healthy person. We know that, for instance, that dental care is tied to heart health. Uh, vision, obviously, is a no-brainer. If you can't see, you probably can't work. Mental health is clearly an issue that we need to have a serious discussion about in the United States it's and like provide the number more care. one killer of, of yeah. young folks um, like in their late teens and early 20s, I think. Yeah, the statistics are really horrible. Yeah. And long-term care, obviously, is an increasingly important part of life that can be a serious financial concern for families and individuals. Now, Medicare is a great framework, but there are certainly places it can be improved, which is why, and I think this is very important, we need to caveat this entire conversation with what we actually are talking about which is an improved and expanded Medicare for All. So mm-hmm. Medicare for All, or Medicare, I should say, has an extremely low administrative cost. It's like two-something percent. Where private insurers have a cost that's around 12 to 18%. And that's because they have to spend money on advertising and all the other things that come with private industry. Medicare is a model that we want to use to build a truly impressive and comprehensive healthcare system in the United States, but it's just the framework. It's where we want to start. So what we really want is we want to have a universal system. We want everybody in, nobody out. We want yeah. to create this universal risk pool. So let me talk about that for a second. What is a, what's a risk pool? Essentially, the cost of receiving healthcare is much more than any one person can pay on their own. In a given year, about 50% of spending on healthcare goes to about 5% of the population. And that's a pretty fungible population. It changes year to year. Some years you need something serious. Other years you don't. Like you might have a car wreck or you might give birth to a child. But when you do need care, the cost can hit you pretty hard. So we have to have these things called risk pools. Insurance companies make money by charging you a premium. And in return, the idea is that when you need to pay for health care, the insurance company will cover the cost because they are paying from this big pot of money that lots of people have chipped into. Okay? Right. So the cost is spread out. So the way this works, or should I say the way that the healthcare works in general under capitalism, is that these insurance industries are incentivized to keep as much of that money as possible. You using your insurance takes money away from the insurance companies. Right. And they don't, they don't like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. Now, that's not the only way they make money, obviously. They, they also try to, um, they also invest some of your money in the stock market. Right, so basically, they're a bank that also conveniently profits from denying you health care. So it's it's a really kind of dark system. Yeah. It makes perfect sense, right? So, yeah. So the risk pool, right? So let's give an, a let's do a hypothetical risk pool. So let's say we have a few hundred people in this hypothetical pool. Most of them are pretty healthy; they're getting along fine. But then a few of them get sick, like very, very sick. Like say, let's say they develop something like hemophilia, right? right? Which mm-hmm. can cost around a million dollars a year to treat. Damn. Yeah, it's very expensive. So now the insurance company, in order to kind of maintain their profit, has to raise the rates, the rates that people are paying to be part of this risk pool. That's how they're going to remain um, solvent, right? But when those rates jump, people who can drop out of that pool probably are going to, right? 
right? Because they're going to end up paying money. Iron law of economics and whatnot. You know, the cost is going to go up. Some people are going to start dropping out, right? Right. And the people that are going to drop out are people that don't necessarily need the insurance right then, right? right. Sick people are going to stay in because they need it. Okay. So this shrinks the risk pool even more, raises cost. And that means the per person cost is it's going to go up, which means the premiums go up. And you can see how this is kind of this vicious cycle that just gets worse and worse and worse. And the way that we fix this is with a universal risk pool. Again, everybody in, nobody out. As many people in as Mm -hmm. possible broaden the risk pool. It makes costs more predictable and reduces the volatility of the private insurance market. Right. That the private insurance market, I guess should say, I should say, basically thrives on. Right. So the, the other part, the other part of the universal single payer is obviously the the single payer part. And basically instead of having all these insurance companies negotiating various rates with healthcare providers, we want to have a single program that pays for services. The fact that there is only one provider to negotiate with means that the predatory price gouging that occurs with the insurance companies will will have to stop. The program will negotiate prices with providers and the system becomes more stable, predictable, and equitable. A great example of this, how this works, would be the VA system, which we can get into a little bit more um, later when we talk about prescription drugs. Um, So that's all what a universal single-payer system is. Um, So let's be very clear again, like clarify just a little bit more what we're talking about when we're talking about Medicare for All, because there's a lot of people out there talking about Medicare for All. I mean, um, Kamala Harris, who has dropped out, God bless her. Um, you know, she was claiming to talk about, she Cop wanted- Mala Harris. <laughs> she- <laughs> I will never get tired of that joke. <laughs> she was calling what she wanted Medicare for all. Andrew Yang calls what he's talking about Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders calls his plan Medicare for all. Elizabeth right. Warren calls her. This is clearly not, all these people cannot be talking about the same thing. We know they're not talking right. about the same thing, right? right? So let's yeah. clarify what that means. So- this definition I'm about to give, these defining characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. These are what we mean when we say Medicare for all. And this is based on the decades-long fight for universal single payer. All Medicare right. for all didn't just spring fully formed out of the foam, right? This is something that people have been arguing for and fighting for for, for a very long time. Um, so let's talk about There's five characteristics of this universal single payer of a Medicare for all system. All if right, it doesn't, it. If it doesn't meet these characteristics, it doesn't deserve to be called Medicare for all. First one is a single health program that everyone covered by one health insurance program administered by the federal government and have they all have equal access to all medical services and treatments. Number two, comprehensive coverage for all. All services requiring a medical professional will be fully covered. You go to the doctor of your choice, dental, vision, mental health, and pharmaceuticals, they're all covered. It's free at the point of service. All healthcare costs will be financed through tax contributions based on ability to pay, no copays, no fees, no deductibles, and no premiums, ever. Universal coverage, that means coverage for all United States residents. This is very important, non-citizens included. Yep. And jobs. This one comes up a lot. Every medic, Both Medicare bills in the House and the Senate have a jobs provision. And this jobs initiative and severance for those affected by the transition to a government-run healthcare. We have to take care of people who work in the insurance industry whose jobs are going to become redundant. We right. can't leave working people out in the cold when we're trying to improve their conditions. So we have to have a jobs guarantee. Yeah, got to, I mean, you know, that's one of the key elements of, I think, what we in DSA are fighting for. And, and, part, and you know, part of the reason why we support Medicare for All is because it's grounded in that 
that focus of worker solidarity. So, yeah, you know, that absolutely. means that nobody gets left behind. You know? Everybody in, nobody out. And that includes jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So I guess the elephant in the room here is how do we pay for a universal single-payer uh, single uh, system like Medicare for All? Mm -hmm. uh, what will individuals end up paying? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. I'm glad I asked it too. <laughs> you know you know what we're not asking this question about? Literally anything like How are we going to pay for spending. these wars? How are we going to pay for this new bomber that's going to go out and How kill How are we going to pay for these tax cuts for billionaires? <laughs> Right, right. All right. Yeah, anyway, it's, that's that's it's uh, funny how that conversation always goes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this could get really annoying and complicated very quickly. So I'm going to try to get into enough depth that people understand it, but also not so far that people start falling asleep. I don't know if people are listening to this in their cars, and I don't want to be responsible for any car accidents. <laughs> maybe maybe pull over or uh, yeah. I don't know, wait. Maybe maybe we can like you know, market this as uh, ASMR or something. <laughs> um, we'll also provide like a link to um, to some reference documents in the episode description if folks want to do yeah. a deeper dive also. That um, you jumped ahead of me because I was definitely <laughs> going to mention that we should link to the study that I'm going to cite a lot here. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So there are obviously a few proposals out there about how we're going to fund this. Whenever this comes up though, I like to take the easy way out here and I point people to the University of Massachusetts Amherst Economic Analysis of Medicare for All, which okay. lays out several funding mechanisms that would pay for the program, including the cost of the just transition for folks working in the healthcare industry, okay. so that jobs program that we just were talking about. Right. And that program, the jobs program is like 1% of the total cost of the program and it's spread out over like five years. So, but we expect that after like the first two years, that's mm -hmm. probably going to kind of diminish because people will find jobs. And um, so we probably won't have to have that money floating out there too much, but it is definitely part of the budget that, um, we're talking about here. Yeah. And, and so, investing in the, in the front end and, and over time it'll kind of. Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. People. Absolutely. And I think we should definitely drop a link to that study in the, uh, the show notes here. Heck yeah. So I let's, agree. <laughs> let's get to, let's, let's get to the fun stuff. Let's get to the numbers. All right. So one of the numbers that gets thrown around a lot is, um, how much this is going to get of costing and something around $3.6 trillion mm -hmm. seems like a pretty fair kind of way to break this down. Right. Are like an estimation, okay? Because there's obviously different cost estimates, but $3.6 trillion seems pretty fair. Okay. So um, this number is pretty high, I mean, no doubt, but it's only half the story. So when you hear these numbers, I think it's really important to consider whether or not they're factoring in all the savings right. that come with the transition to Medicare for all. So that $3.6 trillion that I just cited doesn't. When we factor in the savings, that number actually drops to something like $2.9 trillion. Okay. So that's the number that we're, we're going to need to finance at this point. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to kind of walk us through how we're going to take this number down to zero. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's break that number off into a bit smaller by considering all the public funding sources that we can tap for pay for Medicare for all. So when we look at all that, we get about $1.88 trillion. And we're going to round that down from $1.884 trillion. Okay. So this figure includes all available public insurance funds, funds now provided for other public third-party payers, and federal tax subsidies, as well as health insurance spending on federal government employees. So with all that, that leaves us with a shortfall of about $1 trillion. Again, nothing to scoff at, but I hope you begin to see kind of how much money we can actually divert from private insurance into this program and how quickly this program starts to sound pretty feasible. Yeah. So that last shortfall. Let's talk about how we're going to make that up. 
So business healthcare premiums, we're going to cut them by 8% relative to the existing spending per worker, coupled with coverage for previously uncovered employees of about $500 per uncovered worker, with an exception for small businesses. This one step would cover about 57.6% of the remaining costs. And then with a 3.75% sales tax on non-necessities, net worth tax of 0.38% with a $1 million exception, taxing long-term capital gains as ordinary income, we can come up with that 42% and change and fully fund Medicare for all. So obviously there are other funding proposals out there, but that's a pretty straightforward and easy one to kind of wrap our brains around. And that's the one that's put forward by that Amherst study that I, I just was talking about. Okay. So some people, some people <laughs> might say this is going to burden the wealthy, those poor, poor bastards. Oh no. Mm -hmm. Especially that long-term capital gains part, right? Yeah. To which I say, yeah, fuck yeah it is. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit. So, but here's the thing. Since the 1970s, real wages have barely increased, while the productive capabilities of American workers has more than doubled. Right. So when we look at that, that ends up being around $600 in lost wages per worker per week. Damn. Yeah. Damn. That's damn. Where is all that money That's gone? Damn. Bones, Bones, where's all that money gone? Can you guess? Where's it gone? Uh, up the noses of corporate CEOs, I'm guessing. <laughs> Maybe some of it, some of it. But yeah, to the ultra-wealthy. And since 1989, the ultra-wealthy have increased their wealth by $21 trillion. Hmm. Now, in that same time period, the bottom 50% of working Americans, their net worth has decreased by $900 billion. Shit. We are being robbed, and we're being robbed by the ultra-rich, and it's time long past time that we get back what we've worked, what we sweated for. So to all those people who say this is going to burden the wealthy, I say, fuck them. Good. This is class war and we got to start fighting back and we got to start winning. And I think Medicare for all is going to be part of it. And I'm not ashamed to talk about that <laughs> and be real with you. All right. Um, so, uh, so not only did we, you, <laughs> not only did you break all that down, um, but you also told us exactly how we were going to pay for it. That's mm -hmm. fucking awesome. Thank you. No problem. Um, so it's really not that complicated. It really, I mean, it really isn't. I mean, it takes a little bit of like maybe some note taking and some thinking, but yeah, it's, it's, it's doable. Um, let's talk a little bit about how Medicare for all improves health access and outcomes for marginalized communities. You know, I, I think this is such a really great question and one that I really wish that a lot more people on the national stage were spending a lot more time talking about. Oh, because definitely. I think this is one of the best selling points that we've got. Yeah, definitely. And so this isn't just a fight for a, some healthcare plan, right? This is a fight for social justice. This is a social justice issue. Right. Barriers to care exist for almost everyone in this country, but those barriers are higher for women, people of color, and members of the LBGQT plus community. Not only is the cost of care often higher for these people, but having healthcare tied to employment, you can obviously see the immediate disadvantage to anyone who faces bigotry and exclusion in our capitalist economy. Right. For example, our trans comrades are more likely to live in poverty due to, un to employment and housing discrimination, among other factors. And poverty, in addition to making it harder to afford care, can create and exacerbate health problems. Having healthcare no longer tied to employment would be a very, very clear way to solve this very this very important issue. I, and I say help because the cruelty of capitalism obviously is not isolated to healthcare. Right. 
So we have a lot of work to do in other areas as well. But this is this is definitely a, a step, a big step in the right direction. Yeah. But in general, so Medicare for all, um, in general, um, women and uh, people of color and LBGQT plus individuals, you know, they're all likely to see a massive benefit because these demographics often face higher mental health care costs, higher costs of reproductive health care, costs associated with chronic illness. And Medicare for all takes that all away. Yeah. Your, your boss can't hold your, your health care over your head mm -hmm. um, and force you to basically stay in a job where you get treated like shit. Yeah. And if you need care, you can get it and it's not going to ruin you financially. Yeah. You're not going to carry that burden around for the next two or three decades. Right. This is an right. important thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's, and I mentioned this earlier and I also want to, but I want to say it again. It's very important to point out that Medicare for all covers residents, all residents of the United States. That's right. That includes our undocumented friends, family, and neighbors. Yep. So who, who, who are, who work and who pay taxes Mm -hmm. And, you know, also it's, you know, it's just the right thing to do. Oh, absolutely. I think there's, there needs to be um, an ideological line drawn in the sand a little bit, as well as just the fact that like, you know, hey, undocumented workers, you know, chip in and work just as hard as everybody else does. Yeah. So they, they deserve healthcare. Really? I mean, Medicare for all would benefit marginalized communities the way it would, it would, it would benefit marginalized communities really could be its own episode. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it really but, could. Maybe we'll have to have you back and, maybe. and uh, maybe have some more. Some more guests on and uh, to talk about that and maybe uh, speak to, you know, their their own dreams and, and experiences on this matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really? yeah, but I think it's suffice to say that most of the negative ways that our current healthcare system impacts marginalized communities would go away under Medicare for All system. And that just by itself is worth fighting for. I agree. Well said. That, that, was, um, that was a very uh, uplifting way to end that question. I like that. Um, I try. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's a little bit of doom and gloom on some of these episodes, so it's good, it's good to have like something that's like uplifting and powerful and cool. Yeah. Um, so Nick, mm -hmm. in your opinion, why do you think DSA is putting so much time and resources into backing for Medicare for all when it really doesn't have a ton of either one of those things? Yeah. So, you know, we need a healthcare system that prioritizes the health of working class Americans over the profits of insurance companies and their billionaire executives. Mm -hmm. We need a single universal system with comprehensive coverage that is free at the point of service. And as socialists, we know that the best way to win, the only way to win is to organize and fight. You're damn right. Yeah. To exercise our collective power is a way of is a way that we um, build power. The fight for Medicare for all is is exactly that. It's a fight with a moral imperative with a historic mission and one which we know will provide a very real and significant material benefit to the working class. And as a side note, I think it's really important, especially here in Charleston, and that we have a particular role to play, okay? So one thing I like to do when I'm talking about Medicare for All when people invite me to come talk, mm -hmm. I like to show this film called Power to Heal, which I've is about, it. An, yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. It's about an hour long and chronicles the fight for Medicare. And the one thing I don't think people realize is how tied up that fight was with the civil rights movement. Yeah. Before Medicare and, and Medicaid, hospitals were segregated and black Americans' health was constantly put in jeopardy by the racism of hospital administrators and doctors. Yeah. The movie points out that individuals regularly died because they had to be transported long distances because hospitals close to them had filled up all the beds that were allocated to black patients. So if they got to a hospital and all the beds they had for black patients were taken, they had to go to another hospital. 
I they think... couldn't just move a bed over yeah. or go to the white section of the hospital. And people died in the back of cars really having did. to go from a, to another hospital. If I remember right, I think there were some hospitals and, and some ambulance services that just straight up would not treat or oh, take black absolutely. Folks. And Medicare was a significant step to end that cruel system. And everyone understands, hopefully, that here in Charleston, we are intimately connected to the civil rights movement. Right. But maybe they don't fully understand that we are also strongly connected to the fight for health justice. Yeah. In the 1960s, nurses and hospital staff, most who were black women, struck for better wages and conditions at MUSC. The white administration at the hospital fought tooth and nail against these women. But the nurses marched and organized for themselves and, very importantly, for their patients. The fight for health justice here is tied up very closely with the fight for civil rights and the fight for labor rights. Hell yeah. Yeah. Folks here in Charleston and in South Carolina, and I really strongly feel this, are at the front lines of this fight in more ways than one. And I think we have a special responsibility to pick up the torch, fight, and to win. Hell yeah. Um, And uh, I think, if I remember right, um, the Charleston hospital workers strike was in 1969. Yes. So we're in the 50th anniversary of that. Um, we are, yeah. we are. And there's a great film that you can probably find on the internet called I Am Somebody. That's right. Which documents the, the, the fight. It was an incredibly important fight. Um, Local 1199 was an amazing union and their story just isn't told enough. It really isn't. Like so many folks like to just lump Charleston and, and really all of South Carolina in with like, you know, right to work, anti-union stuff. But really Charleston um, was at the forefront of both, you know, healthcare struggles and labor struggles and civil rights struggles. And we've talked about this multiple times uh, on this podcast is it's so critical um, for us to do work down here because we are, because we're on the forefront of all all of these things and all of these things connect so intimately on so many different levels. So, Nick, are there any other organizations uh, other than DSA who support Medicare for All? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. There's tons of organizations that support Medicare for All. Obviously, you have organizations that have been in the single-payer fight for a very long time, Mm -hmm. like Healthcare Now or the Labor Campaign for Single-Payer. But there's also a lot of other organizations that people um, should know about that support Medicare for all. And I think one of the most important ones, because it keeps coming up in the democratic debates and it's an absolute horseshit argument that labor unions don't support Medicare for all because they fought so hard. (laughs) They fought so, so hard bones for their healthcare. And that the idea of someone coming and taking it away is, is, is abhorrent to them. And this is absolute, (laughs) absolute horseshit. Because 19 unions, which represent the majority of organized labor in this country, have endorsed Medicare for All. So this means like National Nurses United, the American Federation of Teachers, they have supported Medicare for All. And the reason is because when they go out on strike, when they go to the negotiation table, the first thing their boss is coming for is their health care. Yeah. We Mm -hmm. we literally saw it um, this year with uh, uh, some of the teacher strikes. Yeah, um, I think there was one in uh, Arkansas where they came for their healthcare. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 um it's the first thing they're going to come for. Yeah, and there was um there was some testimony yeah. in front of uh, Congress yesterday, and the president of the Nurses Association, National Nurses United, made a very good point. And I'm I'm going to forget some of the details here, but she pointed out that the majority of the major strikes in the last couple of years, you know what they were over? Guess 
Um, what off the top of my head, I would think pay, but uh, I'm healthcare. guessing that healthcare it's would healthcare. be number two. It's yeah. healthcare. Because, and if we can take healthcare off the bargaining table, that means that we can, when we ask that question in a couple of years, you're going to be right. Because <laughs> yeah. when unions go on strike, they're going to be fighting for better work, uh, working conditions. They're going to be fighting for better pay. They're fighting for better benefits. And healthcare is not going to be something that they have to negotiate for. And it's not going to be used as a lever against them. They'll right. know that their families are safe and secure and have the care that they need and that they don't have to bargain for that. So that's one thing. That's one large group of people who support Medicare for all. And more broadly, nice. 70% of Americans, according to Reuters, support Medicare for all. That's huge. And that's, that's across that's across Democrats, wow. Republicans, independents. That's 70% of all Americans. It's an extremely popular yeah. um, proposal. And it's kind of mind-boggling that we're actually having a debate because it's so popular. Yeah. It but, really it really shows, uh, I think, the power of... Uh, uh, the bourgeoisie and just how they, <laughs> uh, how, how money really equals superpowers. Yeah. Like if you, if you have the ability to like stop gap something that a vast, vast majority of the, of, of Americans want and mm -hmm. would, would materially benefit, um, their lives. Um, yeah, you're, you are a, a terrible person and B like, you you have some sort of Lex Luthor ability <laughs> to like make shit happen that you don't deserve. Yeah. So some of the other organizations that support Medicare for All are Physicians for a National Health Program and their student organization, Students for a National Health Program, mm -hmm. which is an organization of medical students and medical professionals, um, although anyone can join. National Nurses United. I mean, obviously, I already mentioned them, but I really want to emphasize how important they are to this fight. They have right. really been on the front lines. Right. You know, and you want to be on the same side as the nurses. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to, you don't want to get on their bad side. No. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, the NAACP has endorsed Medicare for All. Mm -hmm. uh, poor People's Campaign. Um, Our Revolution um, has endorsed, obviously, the DSA. Right. Right. And one thing I really want to point out here, too, is the South Carolina AFL-CIO mm -hmm. has endorsed Medicare for All. And that's not something that can be said for all states. Here in South Carolina, I mean, people might be surprised if they're not from here that we have unions. I mean, we do we have do. one of the lowest union densities in the country. It goes back and forth between us and like North two Carolina. Three percent, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. super, super low. But that being said, we also still have a um, South Carolina Fed that is committed to healthcare justice and Medicare for all. You know, so we might be small, but we are mighty. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's so many other organizations that you could kind of go into. And I think the point being here is that is a broad coalition of people representing a broad spectrum of, you know, who lives in works in the United States. And, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that diversity and the power in that diversity and utilize that diversity to win this fight, which yeah. we are definitely going to win. Hell yeah. If anyone out there is listening and is not sure, we're going to win. Yeah. It's not even going to be close. No, absolutely not. So Nick, what's your opinion about how universal single payer programs like Medicare for All is being discussed in the Democratic presidential candidates? Well, I might not be any surprise. Or I'm sorry, the, the Democratic presidential <laughs> debates. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might not be any surprise that I, I'm a little disappointed at the level of uh, debate on this. <laughs> you know, I'm again, I'm a little shocked that we're even debating whether or not we should have a universal single payer system, but... Here we are. 
Um, you know, I think there's a lot of misrepresentation and myths out right. there. Mm-hmm. And I think some candidates, specifically um, Biden and Mayor Pete, are, are really doing their best to kind of um, obscure the facts and reality of Medicare for all. Right. Um, so I want to just like, maybe let me sideline here and talk about some of the misconceptions here. And then we can kind of get into like what these actual candidates are saying. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the first things is that this is a socialist program. Which I mean, I'm totally chill with. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they don't bother me. Either. Yeah, it's totally yeah. fine. But let's be fair. It's it's not. It's really not. We're not having a socialized healthcare system in this country. You alluded to this earlier, like the NHS, where the government actually owns the hospitals and doctors are paid by the government. That is not what Medicare for All is proposing. Right. Right. What that would be more aligned is like the VA, right. which is a pretty good example too. And uh, the VA represents the closest thing that we have to truly socialized medicine in this country. When you get the care um, and a pa- you get the care, the VA provides a lot of care and has a high degree of patient satisfaction. Um, and I think it proves that the system that the VA is going through, um, uses, is, is works, right? right? And now it's underfunded, obviously, and that's kind of where the problem that's, is. That's really where all of the, all yeah. of the uh, criticisms come from. Yeah. It's like you can trace it all back to how... <laughs> Poorly, it's funded. Yeah, and we don't need to spend a whole lot of time kind of talking about who's responsible for that, because yeah. I think we all know. <laughs> um, yeah, <clears throat> so like I was saying, Medicare is the best model that we have, and it's the great, the best foundation we have to build on. Medicare has a very low administrative costs and high degree of satisfaction. Um, a 2018 Gallup poll showed that Medicare is viewed positively by 90% of its recipients. Wow. That's really high. That's yeah. That's really good. So we have a great solution and a ready-made framework to deploy it through, through Medicare. We just need to organize and fight to make it happen. So, you know, the whole idea that we're proposing a socialized healthcare system, again, while I'm perfectly fine with a socialized healthcare system, that is not what's being proposed. Right. Right. And, you know, one of the talking points that's been taken up um, specifically by Mayor Pete recently is that oh what a what a quick heel turn he did on oh, this issue so huh? quickly so quickly <laughs> when it came to light that you know his time at McKinsey was basically you know cutting costs which means cutting workers right he's like well it always means cutting workers it, it always never means, means, means cutting, cutting CEO salaries right right funny how that how that yeah. always happens mm-hmm. um, but yeah obviously he did a quick turnaround he's like well at least I'm not proposing to eliminate you know however many jobs through Medicare for all and we've already talked a little bit about how that is kind of bupkis, you know, that's that's nonsense. We have right. job programs and it's very dishonest of him to actually propose that because it just proves that he doesn't, he hasn't read the bill. He doesn't know what he's talking about, which, you know, I find hard to believe considering how quote unquote smart he is. Yeah. I'm um, feeling he's probably just disingenuous and um, a liar. Yeah. Um, I mean, you got to follow the money. Look at who's who's funding him. Look at where he's getting oh, his yeah. donations from, especially recently. Billionaires. Yeah. Billionaires. And a lot of um, insurance and uh, healthcare yeah. industry folks, which um, I'm sure has nothing to do with his means testing and uh, spineless approach to healthcare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things out there um, about healthcare. And I think one of the most, apart from the... Unions don't support it, apart from that it's going to destroy jobs, apart from that we can't pay for it, which I hope <laughs> that I have significantly debunked I think all, in all, all three of those talking points have been squashed <laughs> uh, within the past 45 minutes. The last minutes. one is, oh, it's it's impractical. <laughs> it's impractical. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I got a, I got an opinion on that, but you go first. No, no. I mean, obviously, it's 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 extremely practical. And it's not only, pra- impra- it's not only practical, it's a necessity. 
We know that our healthcare system doesn't work and that the outcomes for so many Americans are terrible. Bankruptcy. South Carolina has one of the highest levels of medical debt and bankruptcy due to medical debt in the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know the, I can't remember the exact number, but something like $2 billion of medical debt, debt is held by people in South Carolina. Ugh. We've lost four rural hospitals in the last 10 years. Four hospitals. And those are rural hospitals, so that means they're in some of the most marginalized communities in our state. This system that we have is not tenable. We have to change it. It needs to be overhauled, and we can't work at it around the edges. We tried that with the ACA. We've tried that with so many other pieces of legislation where we've tried to kind of fix it at the margins. And what we end up with is not a system that works the way that we want it to. Because the insurance companies come in, and they lobby, they spend tons and tons of money, and nothing changes. So we know what we need to do. And we need to have the courage of our convictions to actually see it through and abolish the private industry, the private insurance industry and get a universal single-payer system for every American, every resident of this country, and take care of ourselves and take care of our neighbors and have a humane society when it comes to health care. That is what I'm talking about. Well said. Um, so let's shift this discussion a little bit to a slightly broader view. Um, how do you think the current for-profit multi-payer system oppresses the working class and limits our capacity to organize for a socialist society? Well, we've touched on this a couple times already. Obviously, right. you know, crushing debt, right? Mm-hmm. Being driven into poverty because of medical expenses. Medical expenses that I want to emphasize, every single one of us is going to encounter at some point in our lives. And if you are so fortunate enough not to have to deal with something like that in your life, someone you love is going to. Mm-hmm. No one escapes the cruelty of this system. Mm-hmm. All right? So... That's one way. That's one way. Yeah. But also, having our impl- um, insurance tied to employment obviously makes it extremely hard for us to, to, to organize and work. Because you can't change jobs if your boss is cruel. Right. Or if they're sexually harassing you. If you have insurance and you need that insurance, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to quit and you're going to lose that insurance. Or are you going to suck it up? You're going to suffer some kind of cruelty, some indignity, harassment, and you're going to keep your insurance. And there are millions of people in that situation. Medicare for all eliminates the barrier to people living happy and productive lives by making sure that their health care is not something that they have to spend their entire life thinking about and worrying about. So just right there. That's a huge benefit for our capacity to organize as, organize as socialists. We need to empower working people, and Medicare for All is a very real way of doing that. I agree. It's, um, it's a way to put you know, material resources uh, into the hands of the working class. Also, it's a great way to hose rich people. Oh, I love that. And that's, that's you know, at the end of the day. That's taking, what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, we're coming after you, uh. Bill Gates. Yeah. You like, know, we're not making any secret of it either. Like, yeah. they are literally killing the planet. Yeah. So, you know, 
I'm, <laughs> I, I think it, it is not only necessary, mm-hmm. but good and moral to take their money because we are the ones that created their money in the mm-hmm. first place. Yeah. They wouldn't be able to spend a damn dime if it wasn't for our hard work and, and our intelligence and our ideas. Yeah. So, and fuck them. And let me, let me jump off something you just said. You know, they're, they're killing the planet. And I think that's a really important thing. And I hope I touched on this enough earlier enough that the fight for health justice and the fight for Medicare for all is an intersectional fight. It's not something that we can, you know, fight for in a vacuum, right? There's so right. many other fights that are tied up with this, it, you know, um, housing justice for, is an easy one, right? Climate change comes, racial justice comes, all these social justice and environmental justice issues intersect with the fight for healthcare justice. Because what is, what is healthcare? You know, healthcare is influenced by so many things, including your community, your environment, all these things about how you live and the world that you interact with. You know, so I think it's really, really very important that we, we recognize the intersectional nature of the fight for Medicare for all and put that at the forefront of our organizing strategies and the work that we're doing. Yeah, because it touches on so many issues and, and indeed, um, it, it directly impacts uh, the lives of folks working uh, to push those issues to the forefront. Um, awesome. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great answer. So let's, let's uh, keep building on that broader view a little bit. Why do you think that the ruling class opposes Medicare for All? How is defending uh, a capitalist model of for-profit, multi-payer, private insurance essential to protect the power of the bourgeoisie? Well, I mean, again, kind of hopefully we've touched on this a little bit already, but, you know, keeping people dependent on shitty bosses and shitty jobs for their health care, you know, that empowers only one group of people. It empowers the bosses. It yep. makes our lives difficult. Yep. And that's one way they keep, the, you know, their boot on our neck. That's right. You know, in Medicare for all, hopefully we can fight that. Yeah. Um. So, you know, why, why do... The, uh, the ruling class oppose Medicare for all. I mean, there's so many reasons why they oppose it, you know. Obviously, disempowering working people is a, is a major one, but also the profit motive, obviously, is a very clear one. We mentioned that, you know, $21 trillion has flowed upward into the ultra-richest coffers in the last 30 or so years, right? They're right. killing us, and they're making a killing doing it. Yeah. And so... You know, this is a fight not just for ourselves. This is a fight for survival in a, in a very real sense. You know, this is something that we have to win because, you know, the ruling class is is not going to, you know, go quietly into that good night. They're going to fight us tooth and nail on this. They're going to outspend us at every corner. Right. They, that's what they have. They have money. And, you know, it can seem very daunting in how they we're going to beat it. They have money mm-hmm. and they have cops. You know what? But we know what we have. We have people and we have time and they're going to fight us yes. with money and they're going to run out of money long before we run out of time. There you go. Love it. So where do we go from here? Um, making sure folks in the working class can get healthcare is just one part of the puzzle. What are some other ways that we can build class power? Oh, wow. So many ways to build class <laughs> power, Bones. Um, I'll try to keep it tied up to, um, to healthcare though. I mean, all right. First thing, right off the bat, if you can, organize your workplace, form a union, talk with your coworkers. That's one way we're going to have to build this power. 
Unions are the greatest tool that working class Americans, working class people all over the world have for defending their rights. So you should seriously think about trying to form a union. And I know that gets thrown out there a lot. And it's it's very a daunting task. But think about it and, and try. Um, so, you know, that's one way to get involved. But the other way to get involved is, is really to, you know, find out where in your community you can exercise power. Does that mean going to your legislator's office and talking to them about supporting the Medicare for all bills in the House and the Senate? Maybe. Does it mean doing a petition drive or getting pledge cards like what we're doing here in South Carolina? That could be it too. Does it mean taking some kind of direct action? I mean, there's so many ways that you can kind of do it. And I think it's such an important way, you know, you really need to kind of figure out what works best for your community and and do it. And there's so many other organizations out there, Debs Jones, Douglas, DSA, you know, so many organizations out there that are doing really important work and that if you were passionate about doing this kind of work, connect with them, get involved, become right. an organizer, become a leader, become a canvasser, do what you can do to move the needle forward on this because there's so much work to be done and we need everyone, we need everyone we can get. Awesome. Um, so I think you uh, you might have also touched on this question a little bit, but I feel like I'll throw it out there just to make sure we don't forget anything. Um, cause I always want to make sure that folks walk away from these episodes, um, with a, with, with a to-do list. Yeah. Um, how do folks get involved in the fight for guaranteed universal health care? Well, so, um, if you're in South Carolina, you can, um, connect with us, um, with the Debs Jones Douglas Institute and our campaign, which we're calling Medicare for all South Carolina. you can, obviously you can find us on social media on uh, Twitter and, and on Facebook. You can also shoot us a email at m4asc at djdiinstitute. I'm sorry, it's not djdiinstitute, it's djdinstitute.org. We'll make sure that we put that in the episode description also. Thank you very much. Yeah. And we can um, put you to work canvassing or doing any number of other work that needs to be done. But really, I think one of the most important things I think people can do is just go and talk to your friends, your family, your neighbors about about this. You know, you know, we can do all the political education that we want, but some of the most powerful communication that you can do is just talking to people and relating to them yeah. on a personal note. Share your stories about the cruelty of the healthcare system yeah. with people and point out how Medicare for all will fix them and make sure that no one else has to go through that. Yeah. You know, I don't really can't underestimate the value of those stories every everybody that i've talked to face to face and i've shared my own healthcare stories with like every single time they've always come away being like oh wow dude yeah powerful Mm -hmm. like they may not necessarily agree with me um completely Mm -hmm. but you definitely see the gears turning when you um share some of your stories and maybe share some 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 human story and maybe a little bit of vulnerability if it feels safe and and cool to do that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think what we sometimes forget, um, and I'm not trying to be too, you know, civility or anything, <laughs> but remember that we're all human and we all have these things that we think about when it comes to our healthcare. Yeah, and 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 the healthcare of our family and our and loved ones like this is mm-hmm. something that will touch all of us so you may have some surprising ends with people that you may not have 
uh, thought of before. Yeah. And you'll never know unless you have those conversations. Right. And so. um, another part of uh, the way to do that is uh, come hang out with DSA as we go to the flea market. Absolutely. Um, Every I've, Sunday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come hang out. Sometimes we get breakfast beforehand and, and uh, you know, let's just make it a fun thing. Mm-hmm. Like, let's have some good conversations with folks. It ain't that hot yet. So, no. Yeah, it's a perfect time of the it's, year to do it's, it. It's getting a little cold. And I will say, and this is not an endorsement, and I don't want it to be taken as such. Best coffee in Charleston, Ladson Flea Market. Can second that. Yeah. It's yeah. weird how good it is. <laughs> it, it might be like, you know, just first thing in the morning. I think you're just looking for any any hot beverage. No, no. This is, like, an, this is an objective up. truth. It's, oh, it's definitely the best coffee in Charleston. Has it been peer reviewed? Uh, yeah. I mean, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, we'll let you keep that one. All right. Um, so uh, other than that, Nick, any parting thoughts for us today? Get out there, practice some solidarity, kick some ass. Amen to that. All right, guys. So uh, that's the end of this episode. Nick, thanks for coming and hanging out and talking about Medicare for us. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully we'll have a lot more discussions like this. Um, Until then, uh, I'm CJ Bones, and this is Renegade Paradise. Y'all be good. Sad.